Our Father, as uh, was just sung, we do ask that you would work in our lives in such a way that we would gladly receive the things that humble us, that we would gladly receive those things that remind us continually of our dependence upon you and your grace to us in Christ, that we would willingly follow you where you lead. And we do pray that we would be demonstrating the life that is only a small reflection of your own. For you indeed, the Lord of all, in whom was no sin, but only glory, were broken and poured out for us, who were nothing but sin and worthy of wrath. And now that we have been redeemed and your life is in us and we have come to behold your glory and we have received the gift of faith and repentance and the Spirit, we long now to demonstrate in our lives, as we prayed earlier, faltering though we may be, demonstrate more and more your life in us by following you with the same humble worship that we see not only sung in that song but displayed in the woman this morning in our passage. So help us to see that, to be encouraged, to examine our own lives, and at the same time to be compelled to live a life that more emulates your glory. And so we ask you to do these things, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. This morning we'll be looking at verses 6 through 16 as we continue to walk through the Gospel of Matthew. And now, as we find ourselves as we have for the last couple of weeks in these final days of the Lord Jesus as He is nearing the cross, as He is nearing that faithful day and that faithful hour where He would, on the cross, bear our sins, stand in our place, be our substitute sacrifice that we might be reconciled to God through faith in Him. And so that's where we're heading. That's really where we've been heading ever since His birth but now particularly so at the end of this life, at the end of his ministry, now he is heading to that faithful day and it's closer than ever before. And he's aware of that and he knows that and yet he goes boldly on in obedience to the Father to do only what is pleasing to the Father. Now the title of this message this morning is this, The Worship, Worship, The Smell of Heaven or Hell. I wrestled with how to put this exactly, but that's where I ended up. Worship, the smell of heaven or hell. And the idea behind this is that our worship, in other words, you could say then our lives, our spirituality, if you will, has the aroma about it of either heaven or the aroma about it of hell. And that's what we see this morning in this passage. Now, the idea behind that title actually came from Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16, where he said, namely, that wherever he goes, he manifests, God manifests through him the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Now, the aroma or smell that Paul was talking about there was primarily the knowledge of God, the truth of God, proclaimed through his ministry. Wherever he went, he preached Christ, and the knowledge of God was made known. And it was to some an aroma then of life to life and an aroma of others to death from death to death. 
But that aroma, that sense of the fragrance of the reality of Christ in him was not only the message proclaimed, although that was primary, but it was also the life that had been transformed. It was also the life in Paul, the life of Christ in Paul that validated, that displayed, that illustrated that very reality, that very transformation that he preached to others. Namely, Christ crucified and life in him. Now this morning, however, I'm drawing from that language only on that latter part. In other words, the aroma and the sense of the the life that displays, that gives the characteristics of a transformation, that gives the characteristics of the life of heaven, or that bears the characteristics of a life that is more influenced by the spiritual influences of hell. Now, in our passage this morning, there are then both positive and negative examples of this. One has the aroma of heaven. In other words, the aroma of genuine spiritual life. And the other example that we'll look at has the aroma of hell. One demonstrates what true spirituality is when Christ is at the center of our affections. When Christ is at the center of our pursuits in life. The things we desire and the things we seek after. The other shows the false spirituality or worship where self is at the center. Our own dreams, our own goals, our own beliefs, our own desires, disrespecting and dishonoring Christ himself. One comes with the commendation of Christ and the other comes with his correction or condemnation. So as we go through the passage this morning, what I want you to do and us together is to consider these pictures of spirituality, consider these two lives of worship or supposed worship that are displayed to us, can ask yourself the question, what is the aroma of your life before God? What is the aroma of your life before God and before others? What most characterizes you? What most characterizes you? And what effect does your life have on others? Let's begin by reading the passage, then I'll briefly set the context. And then we'll consider these things a bit more closely. Begin with me, if you will, in Matthew chapter 26, in verse 6, and reading down to verse 16. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it out on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out thirty pieces of silver to him. And from then on he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Go back to verse 6, and before we get into the first point, uh, I want to just briefly set the context for you. And note, and in part of that context, uh, to help you notice that 
Throughout this whole account, as we saw a little bit last week, and as we'll continue to see throughout, Matthew is writing an account of these last days of Jesus to intentionally show the sharp contrast that is swirling around him, that is swirling around him everywhere he goes as he makes his way to the cross. The first was rather obvious, which we briefly looked at last week, was namely this, that Christ, who is the one who will return in glory, who will return in the glory of the Father and with all of the holy angels, is here in verse 2, also the Son of Man, who is to be handed over for crucifixion. The one who will return in glory is soon to experience the most unglorious kind of death, a death full of shame, a death full of suffering, a death full of rejection. And then there's the other contrast. It is the evil plotting and deception of the leaders, and might we add the religious leaders of the nation of Israel, those who should have been the ones encouraging godliness, who should have been the ones that were voices pointing to their Messiah. But instead we find them as we have throughout the gospel, and here in chapter 5 of, or verse 5 of Matthew 26, plotting together to seize Jesus by stealth and to kill him. And that's set in direct contrast then with the worship of this woman of Christ, her adoring affection for him. And then within the story itself, we have this woman who with this adoring affection to Christ, this act of sincere worship and devotion to him, we have swirling around that as well, the self-righteous attitude of the other disciples. And then we have the climax of that, which is in the betrayal of Judas. So there's contrasts that are floating all around by intention by Matthew to show the intensity of what is going on as Jesus heads to the cross. Now then the first thing I want to note with that in this context is that this account or this situation, this scene, is not placed in chronological order in Matthew. In fact, this is a scene that took uh, a place before those events of Matthew 26, 1 through 5. It says here, Matthew does, is when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper. At the home of Simon the leper. Now this is the only place that, or this is the only scene anyway, in the life of Christ where Simon the leper is mentioned in Scripture. And we remember from when uh, Pastor Bigelow taught through this passage a, a while ago that, that this uh, leper... This uh, Simon the leper is one who was likely healed from leprosy through Jesus' ministry. Now, one has actually suggested it might be the father of Lazarus and therefore uh, related to Martha and Mary as well, but that's pure conjecture. What we can say at least is this is likely one who was healed of the disease of leprosy through the healing ministry of Jesus. And he is with Mary and Martha in their home. Now, John chapter 12 fills out a few of the other details for us, and that's where we learn that they are here actually at a dinner at the home of Simon the leper with Mary and Martha, and Lazarus is there as well. So John 12 also places this, this scene in its proper chronology, its proper order within the ministry of Jesus, and there John notes for us that this took place actually six days before the Passover, six days before the Passover meal. So most likely then, this is on a Saturday evening before his entry into Jerusalem. 
his triumphal entry, as we call it, into Jerusalem. So the question then becomes, why does Matthew put it here? Why is it here? And the answer to that must begin first with this. Our understanding that while each of the four Gospels is written to present to us the life of Christ... They are not strictly biographies. They are theological accounts, if you will, of the life of Christ. In other words, each gospel writer is portraying Christ and emphasizing an aspect of the person and the glory of Christ to, to teach us some prism some, or some, so give us some aspect of, the, of his glory. And so here in Matthew, of course, he's writing as to emphasize to the Jews he is the king who fulfills all of Scripture. And so he writes thematically to make that point absolutely clear. And here then, keeping with this theme of Matthew, Jesus inserts, or Matthew inserts this scene here in the account of these final days of Jesus to establish, again, a very strong contrast. That's why he places it here. He wants to, in the most striking manner available to him, to put side by side the deep wickedness and the evil and the plotting and the murderous nature of the Pharisees with this act of faith. This beautiful and profound act of faith by this woman. To show the contrast. To show the contrast. To show that those who should... Love him are in fact seeking to kill him. Those who are nearest to him are still in many ways misunderstanding him. And yet here is this woman. And as we'll mention later, who in her great act of worship is not only testifying to the worthiness of Christ, is testifying and looking forward to his death, and even is in fact testifying to the fact that he is king. Now, with that said, let's look at this first point and say, note first, the aroma of heaven. The aroma of heaven, true worship and true spirituality. And so Mary here, as John informs us, is the woman, Mary, stands before us then as a model of true spirituality, of true worship. And we can safely say she's held up to us as a model of true worship or true spirituality because of Jesus' own commendation. Look at verse 13. He says, Whatever this, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her wherever this gospel, going to the first part, is preached in the whole world. So Jesus is giving her a great honor, acknowledging the rightness of her act, acknowledging the rightness of her worship, And in this sense, then, she is a sincere model of worship for us to evaluate our own lives. And think about the wonder of this commendation. Here we are over 2,000 years later talking about it. It's an illustration still to us even today. It's difficult to imagine a higher commendation than this. And I want to note here, too, right at the outset, when we get to this idea of aroma, is that when I say worship, When I say worship, or true worship, or true spirituality, what is meant by that is this. Worship in the sense of a whole life that is in response to the person of Christ. We don't want to take that idea of worship, or even this one act of this woman, and relegate it simply to an event, to this one thing. No, this worship is what is demonstrating, demonstrating a whole life. Sometimes we refer to the worship service. And what are we talking about? Usually music or something like that. 
or we think of worship in terms of when we gather together for corporate worship. And all of those are a part of an expression of worship. But worship in its most basic sense is a whole life, a whole mind, a whole heart that responds to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so that's how I mean worship here as we go through. So let's consider some of the characteristics then of Mary's worship to measure our own. And the first is this. And this outline basically is in, this basic outline is in your bulletin. It's this, and it's a question really. Is your worship or spirituality extravagant? Her worship was extravagant. It was full. It was abundant in its expression. In other words, we could say that her worship cost her something. It cost her something. True worship, then, is not limited or measured. And true spirituality is not lived overly cautious. Overly cautious. A true response, then, of worship to the person of Christ is not satisfied with limitations, with only going halfway, with saying, I'll go this far, but no further, or giving the least amount that is acceptable. When our whole person responds to the glory of God in the face of Christ, there is a sense where we should feel within us that we know no limitations. In other words, we should more struggle with how to give everything and express all that is within us, express our affections for Him, His infinite glory. And so that's essentially what Mary does here. She shows no limitation and she spares no expense in the expression of her love for Christ. Let's consider this. She came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. I think there's two ways then that she displays this extravagance, this this unlimited nature of her worship. One is in the expense of her gift, and the other is in the expression. The first, then, the expense. The expense. That shows here that her worship cost her something. And makes us ask, does our worship cost us something? She has here, then, a very expensive bottle of perfume. This is a compound word, one part of the word meaning weighty or heavy... And the other part of the word meaning honor or value. It can even have the idea of reverence. And so here together, the idea is this, that this perfume was of great value. It was very expensive. So in other words, to use it on Christ, it was an act that came at a great cost to her. It came at a great cost to her. It's not unlike David's words in 2 Samuel 24, 24. When giving a sacrifice for God, he says, I will not offer a burnt offering, do you remember that? Which cost me nothing. In other words, my expression of worship must come at some cost of me in order to me in order for it to be genuine, a genuine expression. Now here in Matthew, he simply says that it's very expensive, that or that it was a very costly perfume. We learn over in Mark chapter 14, which is a parallel, that this perfume was actually pure nard, and it was worth 300 denarii. The pure nard speaks of an aromatic oil. It was probably imported from India. It was very expensive. The fact that it was in this alabaster container would also acknowledge that it was something very valuable inside. And it was no small amount. We also learn from Mark that it was actually a pound 
about a pound and probably about 11 ounces in our measurements of this costly perfume. And he said, as I mentioned, that it was worth 300 denarii. Now, what in the world is that, right? Who knows? Nobody here gets paid in denarii. However, then the average wage, as we well remember, for a day laborer, so you could almost say this was like minimum wage, was one denarii for a day's worth of work. So I thought, how could we put that into our terms? Well, if we took the minimum wage in Connecticut is about $10. So for an eight-hour day, that would be $80 a day times 300 days would be $24,000. That would be some way to give an equivalent of the value of this perfume. I mean, that's unreal. I've never spelled perfume that was $24,000. I can't even imagine what a perfume would smell like that was worth $24,000. But that's the idea here. It was a very costly perfume. It was incredibly expensive. And this was then an extravagant gesture. Except her worship was not shown only in the value of what it cost her, but also in how she expressed it. And it knew no limits. Look at what she did. She, did, she poured it on his head. Now, it was customary at that time, sometimes, to to honor a guest and to uh, show him uh, uh, honor, one of your guests coming in, to take a kind of perfume and put a drop of it on their head, to do something to help with the, the smell that they've accumulated through travel and living in that ancient world. So that was not uncommon then to anoint, if you will, somebody with a drop of perfume, but this goes way beyond that. We learn here that she broke the alabaster container, which would have had probably a long neck on it, and so breaking off that long neck at the top. And she poured its entire contents, about 11 ounces, onto his head, and such that it went from his head down to his feet. As a matter of fact, Mark adds that it was his whole body that was anointed by this oil, uh, this perfume and this gesture of the woman. And we also learn that she wiped his feet with her hair. In a similar way, you'll remember a similar action back in Luke chapter 7. When Jesus was at the home of Simon the Pharisee, that a woman came in and she, in an act of worship, put perfume on his feet and she wiped them with her hair and she mixed that perfume with her tears of gratitude. This is not the same incident here. This is not Simon the Pharisee, but Simon the leper. It's in a different location. So this is not the same thing, the same incident, but this does have many of the same characteristics of worship. Now, it would not have been physically difficult for this woman to do this. It says here that she did it while Jesus was reclining at the table. Table. So you have to picture then a, a room full of people, probably a small wooden table or something, uh, which the men were gathered around, maybe on cushions or couches or whatever. But they're gathered around this table, reclining there, and even likely reclining very, very closely to one another. You get a picture of this a little bit later in the Last Supper. If you remember, John was lying on the breast of Jesus on his chest. And that's the same idea, the same picture here. So for this woman to walk into this room of men, to this room of disciples, and to do this act, it came at some level of inconvenience to the others. In other words, it was a bold act, and it was clearly something done knowing that everybody else in the room would see this, and in some manner and in some measure, have to participate in this act. In other words, they would have smelled it. 
It may have even dripped and dropped on those who were near Jesus. But the point here is this. It's not so much the act in and of itself. It is that her heart was so full of love for Christ that she had no limits in the expression of her worship. She had no limits in the expression of her worship. She loved him. She loved him dearly. She loved him completely. She was overwhelmed inside at who he was and the sight of his glory that she had tasted and actually in some sense had only begun to taste because it was only increase as the fullness of who he was and what he would do would only be built on later. But she loved him. She loved him. And this was an expression of her love to him. One has said this, commenting on this scene. If love is true, there must always be a certain extravagance in it. It does not nicely calculate the less or more. It is not concerned to see how little it can decently give. If it gave all it had, the gift would still be too little. There is a recklessness in love which refuses to count the cost. And that was the love of this woman. There's no idea here that she gave thought of what this would cost her later in life. It was simply all that she had. And the idea is really that it was the most that she had. It was the most that she could give, not the least. And so she took what was the most valuable and expensive and she used it to demonstrate her love for Christ. It was extravagant. It was full. It was even by some could be considered unwise, but it knew no limits. What would that look like for us? What would that kind of extravagant worship and love to Christ look like for us? We can't have that moment repeated. Christ has already gone to the cross and he's already risen. We're not going to give that kind of expression when he returns. He's returning in glory. It's different. Here he's in his humiliation. So we don't have those those, uh, exact details that we can express worship as this woman, but we are called to the same heart of worship. We are, we are able to give the same expression of sincerity. So what does this extravagant kind of worship look for, like for you? My answer to that would be this. Who knows? Who knows? Only you know what that worship might look like. The point or application of this isn't to set some kind of standard, to set some kind of superficial external measure. Rather, here's the application of it. To know your own heart. To know your own heart. To know your own affections. So really then, it would be this. It would be to ask the question, if we're using this to evaluate also our own lives and own expressions of worship, it's to ask this question. Is there anything that I am prompted to give to the Lord, some way that I am prompted to serve Him, but I hesitate because I feel like it will be too much? It will cost me too much. The, The thing that it will cost me by means of money, by means of time, by means of inconvenience, that I'm simply hesitant to do it. It would just be too much for me to do. It'll keep me from doing something else that I would rather do. So how do we know and how do we express this woman's worship? How do we demonstrate it? It is to know our own hearts. It is to know and listen to our own conscience and say, is there some way, is there some type of manner that I am to serve Christ, but I am unwilling to do so? 
True worship, like this woman, true spirituality, doesn't ask those questions. But it's just the opposite. Like her, we delight then, when our hearts are right in expressing worship, to do whatever it is that we can do. Some sacrifice for Christ that we can make in service to Him. We would rather then struggle with the heart of true worship of what can I do that would be so great, not so little, but so great that it would somehow give expression to how much I love Christ and how thankful I am for Him. It's joyfully extravagant. It would be an expression of love that says, I want it to be displayed before all, my gratitude to Him for His grace. And when you have this kind of worship, and when we have this kind of spirituality, this kind of walk with Christ, it's so full of love for Him, so overwhelmed by His glory, so overwhelmed by His worthiness, that again, you might rather feel the struggle of how you can express it fully. For this woman, it was to take very costly perfume and pour it over His head as He reclined at the table. So her worship, and so must our worship be, was extravagant. It knew no limits. There's a second characteristic to it, and this. And this one might be a little bit more subtle to notice, but it is that her worship was vulnerable. It was vulnerable. She had a vulnerable worship. And so we're asking, is our worship vulnerable? What do we mean by that? Well, it means this, that extravagant expressions of love and worship to Christ also come with a danger. They open you up to criticism. They open, it opens you up to misunderstanding, to ridicule, to being hurt by others. In other words, it makes you vulnerable. In some ways, in some ways, some might feel that who have more of a public ministry. If you serve in music, if you sing, if you play an instrument, if you teach, or you do anything else that places you in front of others, there's the greater opportunity for the temptation of fear for self-consciousness, to worry about the opinion of others, to be hindered in what you say or what you do or how you say it or how you do it that you might not receive censure from others. But there's also a sense then of the fear of God, a yielded submission to His will and a desire to worship Him and serve Him in the way that He calls you that gets past all of that, that helps you work through all of that. Now here, Mary did not have a public ministry, but she did publicly express her worship in a way that made her vulnerable to the same kind of criticism, to the same kind of ridicule. Now we'll talk more about the disciples in a bit, but here note, note this woman's vulnerability that she exposed herself to through the reaction of the disciples. And let's, as we look at this, note this, that true worship can leave you then open to the judgment of others. Look at what they did in verse 8. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this, and they said, Why this waste? For this perfume could have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. It's a really strong reaction. Matter of fact, that word indignant is used to describe the way the leaders reacted to Jesus when he entered into Jerusalem and the children were crying out Hosanna to him and giving him praise. It says the leaders became indignant. It's the kind of reaction that the synagogue official had in Luke 13 when Jesus healed on the Sabbath. He was indignant. It's a strong term. It's one described it this way, indignant against what is assumed to be wrong. It's a reaction to what somebody sees as unrighteous, 
as bad, as wrong. Now, just for time, we won't turn there, but let me give you an illustration of this. It's, it's, the, kind of, it's the kind of reaction of those who are offended then here in this context by a sincere deed of devotion. Like David experienced this by his wife when he danced. If you remember when the, in 2 Samuel 6 when the ark was being brought into Jerusalem and he's walking and every few steps, I think it was 6, they're sacrificing, they're making a sacrifice to the Lord and then he had taken off some of his outer garments, anything to sign of his royalty and he's dancing and he's leaping and he's so filled with joy and there's music and there's abundance all around and he's just beside himself with excitement and he comes to his wife and what does she say? Boy, didn't you make yourself look like a fool today? You, the king of Israel, and you're out there dancing like a common person, exposing yourself to all the maidens in Israel. And what did David say? He said in verse 21, David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me a ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord, and I will be more lightly esteemed than this, and I will be humble in my own eyes. But with the maids of whom you have spoken, with them I will be distinguished. In other words, the sincerity of his worship, the fullness and the extravagant nature of his worship left him open to ridicule, but David said, Who cares? You're the one who's at fault. I will serve the Lord, and I will worship him with openness, and I will worship him with a full heart. And, of course, God accepted his worship. His wife was unable to bear children for the rest of her life because of her sin. So here these disciples see this act of worship, and they are indignant because this woman has made herself vulnerable. She's opened herself up to criticism. She has wasted this very expensive perfume. And no doubt their statement was meant to make her feel small, to make her feel unrighteous, to make her feel like she was foolish. She was the one who should not have done that. Had they, she had been more righteous like themselves, she would have thought beyond that wasteful activity and used that perfume for something more advantageous for the needy. How dare this woman do this? How dare this woman do this? But she did, and Christ accepted it. He accepted it. And the point here, though, is to notice just this, that if you're going to live completely for the glory of Christ, to worship Him with a whole heart, you have to be willing to be open to misunderstanding. And in fact, far more than this woman, the greatest example of this is who? Christ himself, right? His life was given fully to the Father out of love and out of devotion to the Father. He was misunderstood from day one all the way to the cross. He was ridiculed. He was maligned. He was rejected. And yet he opened himself up to that. Though the sovereign one, there is a sense that in his role as the Son of Man, the human, that he was vulnerable. He was vulnerable to all of those things, but his love and obedience to the Father was greater inside of him. And so he was unremitting in his obedience to the Father and his heading to the cross. There's another example of this. What about Paul in his ministry? He so loved Christ and was so given to him that he knew that 
his obedience and his whole heart of worship would bring to him ridicule, that it would bring to him the shame of others, that it would bring against him all kind of manner of criticism, of rejection. Listen to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says this, In everything we're commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in genuine love. In the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. By glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers yet true, as unknown yet well known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. He says, our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians, our heart is open wide. So Paul then had, in the same reflective way here of the heart of worship and response to Christ, a heart that was completely open to to serving others, completely open to express his worship to Christ. And what did it do? It left him ridiculed. It left him misunderstood. It left him experiencing shame. It left him imprisoned. It even left him, in this case, to the Corinthian church themselves, open to their censure open to their rejection. But this was it. This was the call of the gospel. It is to die to self. It's to die to self. Be willing to say, I will make myself vulnerable to whatever might be misperceived, whatever might be the reaction of those around me, out of devotion to my love to Christ. And that's precisely what this woman did. And I want to make the last point on this. It was extravagant, this worship. It is... It is vulnerable, and there's one other, and this is the center of it. It is Christ-centered. It is Christ-centered. So you ask yourself, is your worship, is your spirituality, is your life Christ-centered? And what motivates your worship? That might be another way to ask that. What motivates your worship? I think we would say one first is this. It must be captured by Christ. It must be captured by Christ. You must be willing to bear all things, and I must be willing to bear all things because Christ is greater than anything else, and especially the opinion of men. And this is really at the heart of true worship. The heartbeat of the regenerate is those who have seen the glory of God in the face of Christ, who have seen it, who have been captured by it. The reason that this woman could look past all of these other things and offer this kind of worship is this. She was so captivated with the person of Jesus Christ that nothing else mattered to her. Nothing else mattered to her. She was oblivious to the opinion of these disciples. She couldn't have cared less. She had one desire in her heart. One thing had captured her inwardly, and that was Christ. She was so taken with him He was at the center of her affections. When she walks into the room, she could see only one thing, the object of her desire and her love, namely Christ himself, and she wanted, to the best of her ability, to express it. And that's exactly what she did. And the fact is, if Christ is not at the center of our affections, 
if we do not have a real satisfaction in Him that comes from the knowledge of Him, a true knowledge of Him, an obedience to Him, a sincere and humble gratitude for His grace, then guess what? Everything else is going to be more important to you. Right? Everything else is going to be more glorious. That thing on TV, that song on the radio, that activity that you could do, everything is going to be more of a draw on the heart than spending time with Christ and then with knowing Him. It's only the heart that is captured with Christ and where His glory is so taken a hold of a person that He can become and the worship of Him can become the strongest desire inside of us, indeed stronger than the world around us, stronger than the things around us. We're always going to gratify the flesh instead of the prompting of the Spirit if Christ does not have this place of preeminence in our hearts. The desire to be appreciated, the desire to be honored, the desire to be respected by men will be much more powerful than the desire to be approved by Christ. And if I could borrow the words of Paul, I can only say this, that if that is our hearts, if that is our condition, then Paul said this, I would not be a slave of Christ. You cannot fulfill your mission, you cannot obey Christ and have other things, the opinions of men or this world, loom larger in your heart than he himself does. It just can't happen. We will be unfaithful. But that's not how it was with this woman, and so she stands before us as a model. She walked into the room. She walked toward Christ. There was one thing that drove her, and that was to express her affections. Notice what else here about Christ and his response to this. He accepted it, as we mentioned. He accepted her worship. He accepted it from her hand. And this is the greatest commendation and encouragement that we can receive in worship is this, that we can actually be pleasing to Christ. We can actually bring pleasure to Christ. And that's exactly what this woman did, and that is exactly what is a fruit of salvation. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, we also have as our ambition, whether at home here on earth, or whether it absent, departed in being with the Lord, to be pleasing to Him. To be pleasing to Him. Your greatest delight should be that Christ receives and is pleased with your worship, with your life. Look what he says. Why do you bother this woman? She has done a good deed to me. In contrast to their critical attitude, Jesus receives it and He says it's a good work. In other words, it was something that was intrinsically good. It was beautiful to him. It was pleasing to him. It was something worthy of praise. And despite their criticism, Christ then received her act as good and as right. And she was right then to place him as the highest priority. Look at what he says in verse 11. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. That's an incredible statement. And it's really a subtle statement of his deity. As he is the one who's worthy to receive that kind of worship, who should be the priority of this woman's affections. There was a rightness to it in, that he's acknowledging in this statement. Now, of course, Jesus is not saying here that care for the poor is unimportant. We're not going to look at the vi- verses. You can look at Deuteronomy 15, Leviticus 25, and many other places. Jesus' own statement when he talks about his return, who's commended as being his and not his, as those who showed 
kindness to those who were the down and out, to those who were the needy, who named the name of Christ. He's not, he's not saying that is unimportant. Even in the New Testament, in Galatians 2, we won't turn there, but Paul says his very desire was to care for the poor. Those who were the leaders in Jerusalem asked him to care for the poor. And he says, that is my very desire. That is the heartbeat of a Christian to care for those who are genuinely in need of our resources and genuinely in need of our care. But that's not what exactly is going on here. He's not saying that don't care about them. That's unimportant. Just walk around with, uh, you know, these kind of incredible deeds of, you know, giving really expensive things to pour in my head. That's, of course, not what he's saying. Listen to what he says. You always have the poor, but you do not always have me. And that's it. She had one opportunity to express this kind of worship. And in fact, it has been noted, listen... This is the last act of kindness done to Christ before he goes to the cross. This is the last act of kindness. This is the last display of worship. Everything after this, even by his own disciples, is going to be misunderstanding, rejection, fear. But here this woman stands, here this woman stands as an example of worship. As an example of worship. And she had only really, in her mind, one moment to do this. She had one moment to do this. And this was instructive for us. Look at what he says here. He says in verse 12, When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. This is amazing. Now, this statement is sometimes explained as meaning this, that Mary's act of devotion gave to Christ an unwilling witness to his or an unwitting witness, I should say, an unwitting witness to his coming death. In other words, sometimes it's explained as that Mary didn't really know what she was doing. It was just an expression of worship. But in fact, Jesus recognizes that it is indeed then a testimony to my coming burial. But I would suggest that's not necessarily how it has to be understood. It's not necessarily how it has to be understood. Jesus has already mentioned his death on several occasions. The disciples should have gotten this. He's already told them that he's going to the cross, he's going to die, he's going to be buried, he's going to be raised. Mary has already shown herself to be one who focuses in and intently listens to the words of Christ. Remember, it was Mary who was sitting at the feet of Christ while Martha was around busy. Mary listened to Christ. She listened intently to his words. She hung on his words. She considered them and she thought about them. There's no reason to think that Mary, even here, did not understand, though she didn't understand all of its fullness, that Christ indeed was coming in some way to the end of his life. That he was going to be killed. He was going to be taken away from them. And if that was the case then, she was very limited in her time and her ability to be able to do this act of kindness to him. She, was, she had only a short amount of time that she would be able to express this kind of worship. And so she did. She did. And there is just a, a footnote to this, that, that in, in doing that, in recognizing that, that we would recognize that we should not... We should not be slow about the promptings of our heart in acts of kindness, in acts of service and devotion to Christ. Because they can come and they can go. 
Sometimes Christ gives us a unique opportunity to honor him and to worship him. Like marriage, this was not going to come again. He was going to go to the cross. He was going to go away. But she had this moment to do it. And so she seized it. And so she did. And so should we. And he says here, then, this act is preparing him for burial. As I mentioned earlier, there's probably more to this as well. It's not necessarily so that she understood this or fully understood it, but certainly her act is also witnessing to his kingship. She anointed his head, which is how the kings were anointed. She certainly had heard his teaching and knew that he was the king and he was the returning king. No doubt that may have been behind her act as well. And so he rewards her, and that's the commendation. What a tremendous truth, and what a motivating reality to believers is that Christ can receive sincere expressions of worship, and he even rewards them. Let's quickly look at the second part. We'll be spending plenty of time on Judas in the road ahead, but let's just make this as a note of contrast in verses 14 through 16. The aroma of hell. The aroma of heaven is extravagance, is vulnerability, is Christ-centeredness, But what is the aroma of hell? What is false worship and false spirituality? Well, it is demonstrated for us actually by both the disciples and by Judas. And again, I'm going to make this point quickly this morning for time's sake. Ultimately, the greatest example of this, of course, is Judas and in his betrayal. But I want you to notice, as I mentioned, the disciples as well. And I want you to see this smell, this aroma of a life then that is not being influenced by the Spirit, but is being influenced by wickedness. And dare I say, and I hope to show this, even by Satan himself. Note first then their smell of self-righteousness. Look back again at verse 9. This perfume might have been sold for a high price and given to the poor. And on the surface, this sounds very righteous, but their hearts were not right before God. We are not experiencing the disciples at this point as spiritual men, but men that Christ has had to rebuke continually up to this point. If it wasn't long before this that James and John sent their mother to Jesus to try to secure the places of honor at his right hand and his left. As a matter of fact, the Gospels also record for us, I believe it's in Luke, that all the way up to the Last Supper, yeah, Luke 22, all the way up to the Last Supper, these disciples were going to still be arguing, and get this, after Jesus told them that one of them would betray him, that eventually led into a conversation about who of them was the greatest. Can you believe that? These weren't exactly spiritual men at this point. They were self-centered. They were full of self-confidence. They had self-ambition. All of them did. Peter gets the blame a lot of times, but they were all of that same milk. They were all doing the same thing, basically. They were not, they were not yet captured with Christ like they, like they would be. Paul's going to, or Peter's going to show that kind of self-confidence when he says, I, nobody, I'll never, de- I'll never deny you. And Jesus says, you're going to deny me. And guess what? All the disciples said the same thing in verse 35 of Matthew 26. They all were there, full of self-confidence, full of selfish ambition. And here they are, full of self-righteousness as they condemn this woman. They condemn this woman. And let me suggest this is what happens to our own hearts when we are consumed with ourselves and not tender with the Lord. We make unrighteous judgments. Unrighteous judgments. And our piety, like these disciples in those states, is little more than a thin veneer of righteousness and, in fact, 
mask a heart that is unrighteous before the Lord at that time. A truly spiritual person shows humble discernment like Christ who knew here. Humble discernment and tries to walk in love and is quick to assume the best motives unless there's good evidence otherwise. When the heart is right, when it's tender towards others, it's not condemning. And this is especially exaggerated by these disciples because they're all in her house eating her food. She's caring for them and yet they still so easily turn on her and so easily condemn her. True piety, true spirituality is attended with this. The ability to accept one another's unique expressions of worship and service to the Lord. Even more to exercise spiritual discernment that's born out of love. We won't turn there, but you could mark down Philippians 1 chapter 9. There is a spiritual discernment and insight that comes from a life that is growing in love by the Spirit. Philippians 1 9. And so even they had the aroma of hell. And I could say, even somewhat influenced by Satan, if you'll remember that Satan had already influenced the heart of Judas. He'd already put it into his heart. Hadn't yet entered him, but had put it into his heart and was influencing him towards what would later be his act of betrayal. If you remember at the supper, Satan had already uh, asked permission from Jesus to sift Peter like wheat. And so that was also behind his self-confidence and so forth. And so Satan is involved with all of this. And what I would note here is this, that when we are walking unrighteously, when we are not having Christ at the center of our affections, then our hearts and our minds not only are self-righteous, but can become easily influenced by unrighteousness. As a matter of fact, when we compare John 12 and Mark 14, we have the scene come together in more fullness and we learn this, that it was actually Judas who instigated that conversation from John 12. And he did that not because he had a care for the poor, John tells us, but because he used to steal from the money bag and he was the one who was essentially the treasurer of the group. And Mark reminds us that this was a conversation that wasn't even out in the open. It was taking off in the side. And Matthew hints at that because he didn't say Jesus heard. He said Jesus was aware. He had knowledge of their discussion. So this discussion isn't even taking place in the open. It's taking off on the little side. Essentially, you know what they're doing? They're gossiping. They're gossiping. And Judas is the first to initiate the gossip. And because their hearts are not right with Christ, you know what they do? Yeah. Yeah, that woman. How dare she? Nobody said, well, Judas, how do you know that? This is Martha. We know Martha. We know the character of her life. That doesn't match up with who she is. Let's not be so quick to condemn her. But that wasn't their hearts, and so what did they do? They condemned her right away. It was like dainty morsels into their ears and their hearts, wasn't it? That little bit of gossip, that little bit of something against Martha. And so they took it. And then it goes from there, from that extreme thing. And this will lead us into the Lord's table. The greater, however, smell of hell was not only their self-righteousness, not only was their being easily influenced by unrighteousness, but in the ultimate deed of treachery, Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and he said, what are you willing to give me to betray him? It is the betrayal of Judas. It is the betrayal of one of the twelve. Look at verse 14. One of the twelve. One of the twelve one who lived in intimate companionship with him for three years, who walked with him, who ate with him, who talked with him, who heard his teaching, who saw his miracles, who served alongside him, who slept in the same house and the same group, who was with these men and this Lord for three years. 
went to betray him. Psalm 41.9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And for such a small amount, such a small amount. Well, we'll talk about Judas more down the road. I'll save some of that for later. But here it is then to ask ourselves the question, what is the aroma of our life? What is the aroma of our life? What is the character of our worship? What is the character of our spirituality? Christ is the one who really shines the brightest in all of this, and He's the one who should be at the center of it. He's the one who really is the spotlight of all of this. He's the one that was worthy of that kind of worship. He was the one that was going to the cross to purify Mary's own life so that that worship could be accepted because He'd remove the guilt of her sin and allow her expression of faith to be something that could be accepted by God and pleasing to Him. Christ is at the center of it all. And Christ is the one whom we worship now in the table. And so I pray as we come to him, we would examine or this table, we would examine our own lives and to see where we may have at places in our life that aroma not of the spirit but of the world, that aroma not of heaven but of hell, but that we might examine our own lives to make in fact sure that we have in fact given our lives to Christ and trusted in him and gladly want to offer him this kind of whole heart worship. Let's pray, and then the men will hand out the elements. Father, thank you for your word. We ask you now to, by your spirit, uh, well up in our hearts, uh, true affections for Christ, and help us now to examine ourselves rightly as we come to your table. Amen.